Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 86. We're in a sermon series going through the second uh, collection of the Psalms of the Sons of Korah. But as you turn to Psalm 86, you'll notice that the title does not contain the heading uh, of the Sons of Korah. Instead, it says, A Prayer of David. And so this, uh, this psalm is not uh, attributed to the sons of Korah, but it has been placed between other psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah. And so, uh, as such, we'll, we'll take it uh, with, with part of the series. It, it, it's part of God's ordering of the scriptures to, to place it uh, where it is, and it fits thematically with the, the surrounding psalms. And so while it's not technically, again, a, a psalm of the sons of Korah, it is uh, part of our, our series this, uh, that we'll take up this evening. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant. And save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Oftentimes it is difficult to do the right thing. Oftentimes it's difficult to be faithful to the Lord and what he has called us to do. Sometimes this is difficult because of our own fleshly desires. It seems like we are, at times, our own worst enemy, and it's our own desires, our own remaining corruption, that prevents us from being faithful to God. But other times it's difficult because there's external opposition, that you would like to be faithful to the Lord, you would like to serve him, And yet, there are others around you who oppose you uh, on account of that. And we remember what the Apostle Paul said, that 
all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ means that we will, in some way or another, suffer persecution. And so we come to Psalm 86, and we find a psalm fitting for such a context. A psalm for a servant of God who must suffer when he faces opposition for his faithfulness to God. As we look at the psalm, we'll be looking at this basic idea that when God's servant cries for help, God responds by giving an enemy-shaming, nation-gathering sign. When God's servant cries for help, God responds by giving an enemy-shaming, nation-gathering sign. And so we'll take up uh, Psalm 86 under three, um, three categories, looking at it in, in three headings. First, we'll consider the servant and his cry. Secondly, we'll consider the enemy-shaming sign that the Lord gives. And then finally, that, consider that, that same sign as also a sign which gathers nations together to come worship the Lord. So first, consider the servant in his cry. You see David referring to himself in the psalm, and we understand that the psalm speaks prophetically of David's son, and not just David, it speaks of Jesus Christ. But you see that the, the way that the psalmist describes himself is as a servant. You see that in verse 2, uh, the end of verse 2, O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Verse 4, make glad the soul of your servant. And then looking down towards the end, verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, O grant your strength to your servant, and save the son of your handmaid. So the, desig the designation that's used here is not king, which might have been used. It's not uh, anointed, which might have been used, but it's, it's servant. And as we think about this idea of what is a servant... We can, we can basically state it in this way. It's somebody who does the will of his master. That David, speaking in the voice of the psalm and prophetically speaking of, of Jesus Christ, is the one who does the will of God, who carries out the will of the Father. And I would suggest to you that as we read this psalm, we should read it as part of the scripture's wider teaching on this idea of a suffering servant, that the Lord uh, calls uh, several notable figures in the Old Testament his servants. He calls Abraham and Moses his servants. Uh, David is his servant. Job is his servant. And we also think of Isaiah, notably the suffering servant of Isaiah. And that we should read Psalm 86 in in that wider context, that there is a servant, somebody who's going to carry out the will of God, but who in doing so will suffer. In doing so will be persecuted by those who hate him.
And so this idea of a a servant is is present in our text. This is the prayer of one who would seek to carry out God's will faithfully, and yet in doing so faces opposition. And facing opposition, we hear a prayer. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. May glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. So the first seven verses of our psalm are the the crying out of the servant, looking for God's mercy, pleading for God to answer him in his affliction. Now, just reading the first seven verses of the psalm, we don't know yet what exactly is the nature of the affliction. Is it that the servant has sinned and there's some, some sickness that has been sent and he's waste, his bones are wasting away, and so he's crying out for mercy? Or is it a close friend who has betrayed him? Is it foreign enemies and nations who have risen up against him? In the first seven verses, we, we don't really get that detail. We're, we simply have this cry on the part of the servant to the Lord to hear him and to rescue him, to deliver him. And the servant makes many, many arguments, makes many appeals in his, in his prayer. He points out that he is poor and needy in verse 1, but he is godly and trusting in the Lord in verse 2. He points out that he is persistent in verse 3, crying out all day long. He points out that he's going to the right place for help in verse 4, I lift up my soul to you. He appeals to God's own character, abundant and loving kindness. Uh, good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. And so the servant cries out for help. Will he receive an answer? And the answer is yes, he does. He is answered by God. The Lord does hear the prayer and he will respond. And we find that uh, the, the result of that response in the following verses, in verses 8 through 13. And I want to skip over a little bit from 8 and 13, though, and go down to verse 14. You can think of Psalm 86 as as being divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 7, uh, 8 through 13, and then 14 through 17. And the first and the last section are the, the places where David is crying out, crying out for mercy, crying out for deliverance. But then in the middle portion, you have this this different perspective where it's, it's apparently there's no distress, it's, it's rather uh, rejoicing, celebrating. You can think of it this way. You can imagine a swimmer who is uh, drowning at sea, and he's been plunged under the surface of the water, and he is uh, desperate for air, he's desperate to grab onto something solid on the surface, he's desperate to be on dry land, and there's 
there's a moment where he comes up above the water and he grabs onto a lifeboat that has come to rescue him and he takes a deep breath of air and he holds on to something solid for a moment and he sees from this serene position that all will be well. But then he is plunged again by a wave underneath the water. The psalm is something like that. It's, it's, it's crying out to the Lord as, as the servant is overwhelmed, needing deliverance. But then right in the middle of it, there's this serene perspective of what will be the case when God answers. And so we'll take that up, but at first I would like to continue with this, the psalmist's cry, with David and the servant's cry, and we'll pick that up in verse 14. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed, because you, O Lord, have helped me. And comforted me. And so now we, we find more find out more about what the, the distress is. Proud men who have surrounded the Lord's servant, who oppose him, who are the servant's enemies and who are the Lord's enemies, because they have not set God before them. And here's here's the, the there's a request for deliverance, but there's also a request for a sign. And this, this brings us to our second point. So the psalmist, uh, the psalmist is a servant who cries, and he cries out for a sign. And the Lord will give an enemy-shaming sign. Verse 17. Show me a sign for good, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Jesus, on earth, when he was surrounded by hostile enemies who opposed him, found those who were asking for a sign. And Jesus said that the sign that they would be given was the sign of Jonah. That Jesus would be three days in the belly of the earth, and that he would be raised again. They sought a sign, and the sign that Jesus said would be given to them was that they will tear down this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up, that he will be raised from the dead, and that this will be a sign of God's favor towards his servants, and that this sign puts his enemies to shame. It overturns the, the, those who oppose him, and it overturns their ruling and judgment, putting him to death, rejecting him as the Messiah. And Jesus, vindicated in the resurrection, finds that his enemies are put to shame. And this will be the case for us as well in our resurrection that those who oppose the church will find at the last in our when in the general resurrection from the dead and as we are raised in glory that they have put all of their confidence in a false hope and they will be ashamed of the things that they trusted in. And so we could consider the resurrection as a sign that puts Christ's enemies to shame. 
but I think we can also consider the crucifixion itself as a sign that puts Christ's enemies to shame. Consider what we read in Luke's account of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus, having uh, cried out to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, uh, breathed his last. And we read in Luke 23, 47, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. You could imagine in the Roman Colosseum spectators going home reveling in what they had seen. You could imagine a group of, of teenage boys walking back home and, and saying, wasn't that, wasn't that great when he was running away from the lion and then the lion pounced? But the crowd that gathered to watch the crucifixion, they came for a spectacle, the public execution Come, come for the entertainment. Come to see the, the, the man put up on a cross. Good entertainment. What a way to spend the afternoon. They don't go home reveling in what they've seen. They go home beating their breasts. They've seen something that has put them to shame. They've seen the sun obscured and darkness over the earth. They felt the earthquake. And they've seen the Lord's servant suffer, pursuing the will of his father. And that this puts the crowds to shame and sends them home, beating their breasts. The uplifted Christ is a sign uh, of God's favor. The crucifixion is described as a sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God. And it is itself a sign of God's favor uh, towards those who were his enemies. And as it reveals their sin, it puts them to shame. And this is a good thing. Christians are called to be ashamed of our former way of life. Paul, writing in Romans, says, What what fruit were you getting from those things of which now you are ashamed? That in the Christian life, as we have seen Christ by faith crucified, as we've seen our sin exposed, as we've seen God's righteousness put on display against what sin deserves, we wake up to our sin. We die and we're raised again and we're ashamed of the things we used to do. Even as Christians, we're still ashamed of things that we have done as Christians, things we did a long time ago or even things that we did this week and we look back on it and we say, how shameful. When we see the flesh for what it is, we are ashamed 
And so we find that Psalm 86, prophetically speaking of the sufferings of Christ, asks for a sign from the Father, a sign to, to show his goodness that will put his enemies to shame. And that that is fulfilled in Christ's reconciling death, inviting those enemies to come and be reconciled to God, to turn away, to go home beating their breasts, but in doing so, to turn to Christ in faith, ashamed of their deeds, and trusting in him for deliverance. And so God gives a sign to the servant for his enemies to see that puts them to shame. And so we who confess the name of Christ in confess that, yes, we are ashamed of our former way of life. We are ashamed of the flesh because we have seen Jesus lifted up on a cross by faith for our sins. Now, those who will not be ashamed at this sign, those who see that sign and refused to go home beating their breasts, will find themselves ashamed in the last day at Christ's appearance. But now at present, this sign is held out to the nations as a banner. Yes, to put them to shame, but to bring them to repentance and to salvation. And so if you are an enemy of the cross, if you are an enemy of Christ, behold what God has done to reconcile sinners to himself. It's as we behold this cross then, as we behold this sign that has put us to shame, that we are brought as the nations to worship God. The suffering servant has cried out for a sign. God has answered with a sign that puts his enemies to shame, reconciles them, makes them members of his own household, makes them his own sons. But the sign also gathers the nations in. Third, our third point that the nations are gathered by this sign. And so now we return to the middle portion of our psalm, that, that moment of serenity where we, we uh, for a moment, see the, the, the servant not crying out, um, but, but praising God. We read in verses 8 through 10, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. If you were to just read these verses by themselves, you, you might wonder, how does this fit in with, with the rest of the psalm? It, it seems like he's crying out for, for deliverance, and then there's just this sort of abrupt transition to praising and worshiping God and the nations being gathered in. But how does it fit with the rest of the psalm? That's why I have suggested that we should read this in light of the suffering servant motif that we find elsewhere in Scripture. That with this idea of a suffering servant, there all, often comes this idea that the servant will gather the nations to worship the Lord. That Israel was to be God's servant, to carry out his will and bring blessing to the nations and to draw the nations in. Israel failed as servant. They didn't serve the Lord. They served idols. But God raises up a singular servant who will come 
who will render faithful service to God, and who in doing so will not only bring back and, and, and uh, uh, deliver Israel, the remnant of Israel, so that they will begin to carry out their function as a servant, but the servant will also gather the nations. So consider Isaiah 42, 1 and 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. There's been a global mission of the servant. The servant has a mission to Israel, but it's always to extend beyond Israel to the ends of the earth to the coastlands. And when the servant uh, carries out his faithful duty in service to the Lord, he will bring back or bring in and gather the nations. Or consider Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Too small. You're asking for too little. If you want Israel to come back from the the exile, and that's all you're asking, you're asking something too small. It's a light thing. Too light of a thing to ask that. No, my servant will go and uh, bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's global in its scope and perspective. And so as we read Psalm 86, I think we should read it in that context, that this servant has a mission to the world, that he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so what we read in verse 9 is is very fitting for this psalm, that this will be the outcome of the servant's work, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. And again, in light of further revelation in the New Testament, we understand that the great and wondrous deeds that God has done is giving his own son to reconcile sinners to himself. And that through this, the servant gathers in the nations, that the nations come and worship and glorify the Lord Standing in parallel with this is the servant himself. Verses 11 through 13. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And so in verse 9, you have the nations who come and worship before and glorify God. And you also have the servant in verse 12. With all my heart, I will glorify your name forever. And so what we have here is a, is a picture of the Lord's servant in the company of the nations uh, uh, worshiping and praising God's name. And again, we find that this is a description of Christ that Christ's uh, 
praises God, shouts and announces God's name in the company of his brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers that he gathers us in so that we may come alongside him, the one servant who did fear the Lord rightly, who did have a united heart, a a single-minded heart that was totally devoted to the Lord in everything and who was delivered from the depths of Sheol, from the depths of the grave in resurrection life. And so it's this middle portion of the psalm that receives uh, much emphasis. As I mentioned, it's like that, that point where the swimmer breaks the surface of the water and he has a respite. Even in the midst of his crying out, even in the midst of his prayer where he is afflicted, where he is surrounded by enemies, here is, here's the point where you are able to, to come in the psalm and be refreshed and see this is how it all ends. This is the outcome of the work of the servant of the Lord who served him with a single uh, with a, a single mindedness, with a with a heart fully devoted, the servant who walked in the way of the Lord, who glorifies the Lord, and who does so in the company of the nations who have also gathered, because they have seen God's great work. They have seen the servant delivered from the depths of Sheol. And so we may take comfort that we have reconciliation with our God through Jesus Christ, that he is that servant who has carried out the task faithfully. That's a great comfort for us. But we can also recognize that Jesus, being the servant, doesn't mean that we can't also sing Psalm 86, that Jesus makes us servants of God as well. It's a common descriptor of of the saints in the New Testament is that we are are servants of our God. As we live the Christian life, as we seek to be faithful to our God to carry out his will, we will face opposition. There will be those occasions where it just seems easier to be quiet, but where you will feel compelled in faithfulness to Christ to speak up and to oppose uh, something wicked around you, and you will face opposition. You will face persecution as you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And so we can recognize that this is a psalm of the servant, but also of the servants of the Lord. This is a psalm for the church to pray. That we ourselves are called, like the servant in this psalm, to all day long cry out to our God to hear our prayers to ask for his deliverance, and to show a sign that will put our enemies to shame, to ask for him to make the cross of Christ glorious around us, and to ask God to gather in the nations because of the work of his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has faithfully served you in all things, who did not come to do his own will, but the will of you who sent him. We ask that we ourselves would be faithful servants, that we would recognize that 
even as we fail, we can always go back to that one suffering servant through whom the many were accounted righteous, even our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.